On behalf of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, good morning and welcome. I have the privilege of working on global food security here at CSIS, and this morning, all of us have the privilege of listening to, and probably more importantly, talking with U.S. Special Representative for Global Food Security, Ambassador Nancy Stetson. Nancy was also the U.S. Ambassador for Habitat 3, the worldwide U.N. conference on urbanization. I'd like to start by sharing a quote from Secretary of State John Kerry. He said this about two and a half years ago. When I first sat down with President Obama to talk about being Secretary of State, he told me that food security was one of these looming, emerging issues that he really wanted to make a mark on, that he wanted to address. He felt compelled to for a lot of different reasons. And Nancy Stetson was the first person that I thought of to lead that effort at the State Department. Nancy was absolutely pivotal in our efforts to ultimately make peace with Vietnam. And by that, I mean to really put to bed the residu resi <laughs> residual issues of that war, which were encapsulated in the issues of prisoners of war or those missing in action, and the fact that we still had an embargo. And Nancy did an unbelievable work in that effort. Nancy has had a career of unbelievable work, often behind the scenes, She's been a public servant for decades, working to improve the lives of those less fortunate. When working on Capitol Hill, Ambassador Stetson helped spearhead bipartisan legislation to spur and sustain the President's emergency plan for AIDS relief, or PEPFAR. You know, as we look back, I can't help but remember the role of President George W. Bush. You know, he made a lasting impression in terms of international development, particularly for his leadership in PEPFAR. And at the end of his administration, President Bush turned his attention to agricultural development and food security in Africa. And as I'm sure Ambassador Setson will address in her remarks, we have seen unparalleled attention and remarkable progress on global food security under President Obama's leadership. It's very clear that this administration has made an indelible mark as a leader in addressing hunger and malnutrition in the developing world. So please join me in welcoming Ambassador Nancy Stetson. Thank you, Kimberly. Good morning. Thank you, Kimberly, for that very nice introduction. And uh, thank you for CSIS to, uh, for giving me the opportunity to have this little chat with you this morning. Um, you know, as Kimberly said, this administration has made great strides in addressing hunger and malnutrition around the world. And I am very proud to have served in this administration, to have worked for President Obama and Secretary Kerry, whom, as she said, I've worked for for a very long time. And also, I'm very proud to have led a team at the State Department that is forward-looking and driving, and to work with my colleagues at AID. Without them, we are a team. Without them, we could never have made the progress that we have made on food security. That's not to say that other agencies in uh, the administration haven't done a lot, USDA, MCC, everyone has. But I think state and aid have a special relationship, and I'm glad to be part of that. And I hope in the next administration that special relationship will keep, keep going on as it has to date. 
as Kimberly said, I came to food security really not as an expert on global food security, far from it. I was a national security advisor type, a foreign policy type. I worked on South Africa sanctions in the 1980s, witness the gray hair. Uh, I worked on Vietnam, as she said, and I had the privilege of working with Senator Frist's staff and many others, including uh, Dennis McDonner, on the legislation which created the underpinnings for PEPFAR. Interestingly enough, in those many decades I was sitting on Capitol Hill and even in the private sector working on various issues, food security wasn't at the forefront for those of us in the national security world. Um, it really wasn't. So when I came into this job at the State Department, I had a lot of learning to do, a lot of reading to do, but I also came in as someone who could take a look at the whole picture and ask herself, you know, what do I need to know? What are we doing? Should we do something different? And most importantly, what are the issues or trends that are going to impact us over the next 10 or 15 years that we have to address? Trends that maybe we haven't looked at yet, but we really need to if we're going to achieve our goals. And I found as I looked around, there were four, I think I'm going to call them assumptions, that seem to drive our work and our thinking. And while they are um, make a lot of sense, I think that as we go forward, we need to think about them a little bit harder and perhaps to tweak them a little bit in terms of our thinking. The first one is really the sort of the idea that food security is a development issue only. Now, all of us know intellectually that's not really the case. And yet, it seems to be sort of the fundamental underpinnings of how we think and work about it. And I say that, and this is especially true in the State Department. When I first came to the department, I went around, I did all the meet and greets, and all the meet and greets were with all the other assistant secretaries and special reps who did anything that touched upon food security. And some of these people I knew for years, some of them I didn't, but was almost every one of them said to me, that's great, Nancy, you're working on food security, I'm so glad we're going to do that, go over to AID. And I said, yeah, well, AID does tremendous work on food security, but... I'm here in the State Department, you're here in the State Department, and we need to think about food security in the State Department. And indeed, that was the mandate to me from Secretary Kerry personally. I want the State Department to be more ramped up. I want to do initiatives that will complement Feed the Future. I want to drive this issue through the department as well to meet President Obama's goal, which is having a very robust whole-of-government effort on food security. Obviously, food security is a development issue. Nobody questions that. Obviously, agricultural development and helping smallholder farmers is critical to success in the food security world. And so USDA and other agricultural ministries around the world are focused on it. But it's more. It's linked to economics. It's linked to trade. It's linked to climate change. It's, it's critical, both the environment, both what we do in the food security, what we do when we grow products, and what we don't do have an impact on the environment. It's a humanitarian issue. And guys, it's a national security issue. And some people want to resist that. But it really is. Food security, food insecurity can be a driver of instability. It can be a byproduct of instability and conflict. We've seen that in any number of places. And yet, I think we tend to play it down or ignore it, much to our peril, I think, in, in many situations. The second sort of assumption was that hunger is primarily a rural problem. No question. There are hungry, poor people in rural areas, particularly in Africa. I've seen them. I've been there. You've seen them. You've been there. But demographics are changing. People are on the move. People from farms are beginning to move back and forth to secondary cities. Um, and people are on the move in general. Urbanization is an important trend. It's, the world is urbanizing faster today than it has in the past. 
By 2050, two-thirds of the world's population is going to live in cities. And in Africa alone, urban populations are growing twice as fast as rural populations. Cities will add nearly a billion people over the next 35 years. And in many cases where that urbanization is happening are in the very countries that are still very food insecure now despite all our, our efforts and the global community's efforts. In Asia, more people are already living in urban areas than in rural areas. And when we think about urbanization, what do we think about? We think, you know, economic growth, rise of a middle class, jobs and income. And that's true, but it's not true across the board. It's not true for everyone. We have a billion people who live in slums around the world. Those people are hungry. They don't have jobs. They don't have incomes. And the truth is, if you're in an urban area, if you're in an urban area and you don't have an income, you are hungry. So part of the challenge in food security is going to be dealing with how do we make investments along the agricultural food chain that will also bring incomes to people in urban areas and in peri-urban areas. Hunger is already, and it's going to continue to be, a challenge in these, in these particular areas. Yet I found that when I started to talk about that initially, people looked at me kind of cross-eyed and was like, why are you talking about urban areas? You know, that's not the problem. We need to stay on the farms. And I thought, well, this is silly. We need to address hunger wherever it is. And certainly in the global agenda for 2030 under SDG 2, our goal is to eliminate hunger everywhere. It doesn't matter where it is, whether it's in the city, whether it's in a little suburb, whether it's on the farm, or whether it's someplace in between. I think the reluctance, if you will, to sort of think about this movement of the problem, it's not that people don't really know that people are hungry in cities, but I think just as there was in, with respect to HIV AIDS and PEPFAR and vaccines and treatment money and so forth, I think there's a fear that if we expand our scope, then we're also going to be threatening the resources that we already put into the food security, sort of the rural smallholder farmer, fisherman world. And that certainly resources are a challenge. But I'm not arguing that we direct our attention from one place to another. What I'm saying to you is we're going to have to expand our approach and expand our mind and our mindset about where we need to work. Interestingly enough, especially as I started working on the habitat negotiations and the urban issues for the department, I realized also that just as people in the global food security community might be a little bit antsy about talking about urban areas and hunger in urban areas, people in the urban, the dual urban issues never think of hunger. They never think of food. They really talk mostly about, they talk about services, they talk about electricity, they talk about water, they talk about sanitation, but nobody Nobody was talking about food. Nobody was talking about building markets. Nobody was talking about, you know, how do we ensure food supplies and how do we ensure that the food that people have access to is nutritious food. So one of my objectives, and frankly, the main reason why I agreed to lead our delegation to this Habitat 3 negotiation was to be able to drive the message that food security needed to be included in everything we do in urban areas. And that also includes climate because... There's a lot of focus on the impact of climate on cities. But climate and food, 
they're attached, they're related, we all know it. And we need to expand our mind. They need, they in the urban community need to think broader and so do we. I think the mindsets are changing. Um, I think that, uh, a, you know, we are looking, I know AID has done a series of round tables and is looking more at the trends, urbanization being one of them that will impact our efforts in food security down the road. Um, I want to take a little credit for pushing them down that way, but I think that it is something that we're all beginning to recognize that we need to look at. Um, as Earthring Cousins has said, if we're truly serious about achieving SDG 2, then geography really shouldn't matter. And that's not only geography from country to country, but it's also geography within any given country where there is food insecurity. The third sort of assumption or notion that's floating around out there, I think, is that, well, we have data. We have lots of data. You know, all kinds of different entities put out data. The World Bank puts out data. IFPRI puts out great data, all of which is true. But the fact of the matter is we data isn't as good as we think it is. Again, when I first came into the office, I said to the staff, can we get a map where we have that shows food insecurity, the impact of climate, where poverty is residing, um, and where conflict overlays this, sort of a heat map, if you will, of all these pieces. And they looked at me and they said, um, a heat map, huh? Okay, well, we can maybe get one made that shows all the countries. I said, well, can we get one made that shows inside these various countries? Can we see what's going on? If take Nigeria or take the Congo or take Yemen or whatever, can we see inside? And they said, well, no, not really. I said, well, why not? And they said, because the data's not really there. And I said, what do you mean the data's not really there? And they said, well, some of the data is outdated. Some of it's nonspecific. Some of it is, uh, for example, if you do baskets, you know, if you do a market basket, in different uh, places, you go out and you do a survey. They go go to maybe one place or two places in a huge country. What does that tell you about someone's ability to purchase food? It doesn't tell you as much as you need to know. Our resources, the investments we make in food security, cost a lot of money, as we know. And resources are precious. ODA is, you know, we struggle to have enough overseas development assistance for all the things that we want to achieve. So we need better data so we can make better, more informed investments. We need data that's newer. We need data that's disaggregated. We need data that also not only looks at where we grow crops and food insecurity, but it also looks at malnutrition because they are definitely connected. And that brings me to number four, nutrition. Where's nutrition in the picture? It is my sense that the nutrition community is doing great work and the food security is doing great work, and they are aligned, but it seems a little bit uneasy at times. Sort of nutrition is somewhat involved in the food security dialogue and somewhat uninvolved in the food security dialogue. And I think partly it's because nutrition, it's partly because of the way we do money, the way we appropriate money here, because money for nutrition investments come through one stream, from money for food security investments come through another stream in terms of our own appropriations. But I think we have to remember that it's not just a question of access to food or having more food, but it's a question of having nutritious food. And I think there is a challenge before us in sort of 
bringing our colleagues together in the nutrition and the food security community so we're both champions for both. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that anyone sitting here or watching or any of us who work in this don't think nutrition is important if we're in the global food security community. And I'm not saying that the nutrition community doesn't think the food security is important. I just think that the alliance can be tighter. because I th And I think that when we think about investments, we actually need to work in a more integrated way to say, you know, how do we make investments that maybe benefit more, more than just growing more food, but growing better food? Do we need more investments in, um, you know, improving our seeds? Do, what is it we need to do? Do we need more investments in supplements? Whatever those are, I think that we need to think more broadly and include nutrition in our thinking about investments. So that's what I saw when I came. And I've seen it, uh, I think it's shifted a bit over the last few years, but that was sort of my initial impression of where the mindsets were in the global food security community. As I said, the secretary asked me to come in and identify emerging challenges to look at any gaps in what we're doing and see whether or not gaps could be filled or whether we just have areas where we haven't been able to put as many resources in. Um, for example, we've focused a lot in my office on... Uh, fishing and oceans and, and smallholder fishermen, if you will. And certainly AID does a lot of good investments in that area, but we felt that maybe more could be done. And so we have tried to bring resources to that area as to supplement and complement what we're doing already under Feed the Future. Um, I think that I'd like to talk a little bit about the accomplishments that we've had, because I've, I think we've had a lot in the last eight years, and uh, certainly Feed the Future is, is, is the greatest accomplishment of this administration. Um, I don't need to go through the history. You know that when food prices spiked in 2008 and 9, as, as Kimberly said, President Bush was already on the issue of food security. President Obama came in in his inaugural address and said he wanted to end hunger around the world. And uh, at the ch 2009 G8 summit, the United States committed $3.5 billion per year for food security, and thanks to, I think, President Obama's pushing, along with others, we generated and leveraged that into something like $22 billion to be attributed to food security over the next several years. And we built a whole-of-government effort to address food security. And it worked, and it's working. You know, we have interagency meetings. We all know that interagency meetings can be good and they can be bad, but the fact of the matter is one of the things I've seen over the last two and a half years, is how the agencies are working increasingly more closely together. And, and there's a reason for that partly, which is the passage of the Global Food Security Act as well, but I'll get to that in a minute. But let's just look at some of Feed the Future's results for 2015 alone. We helped more than 9 million smallholder farmers adopt innovations and practices to improve their incomes and nutrition. We have supported producers, many of whom are women and youth, to increase their incomes from ag sales by more than 800 million. We've reached 18 million children with nutrition interventions, and we've leveraged more than $150 million in private sector resources to improve agricultural systems. That's pretty good results, and that was for last year alone. But most important, I think, in terms of the ongoing focus on food security and maintaining that ongoing focus, is that the United States has become the elephant in the room on food security in diplomatic channels. People know 
that this country is committed to ending hunger and malnutrition. They know that we're putting our money where our mouth is. And the fact of the matter is, when we go to G7 meetings, when we go to APEC, when we go to the G20, we speak and people listen. They know it's serious. They know that it's purposeful. And when we bring new ideas to the table, like any time you bring a new idea, maybe there's a little bit of resistance, but people are willing to listen to it. And right now, our biggest challenge, of course, is to maintain that focus in these forums. And I'm very proud to say that in terms of these diplomatic forums, you know, I carry the role as the diplomatic coordinator for Feed the Future. But the fact of the matter is my team works extremely closely with AID's team as well, so that when we go to these diplomatic conferences, we're in sync. We're talking together. We know what we want to push. We make an agreement before we get there as to what we want to push. And then we try to get that agreement either adjusted and blessed through the interagency process. So when we show up, we're representing the whole of the United States government in these efforts. And I think it has worked. And I think we can look at these processes and see a lot of accomplishments. Um, in the G7, we've been able to push food security, not only various different ideas, various different focuses, um, through APEC. We have really, I think, of all the achievements of the administration, certainly helping the people on the ground who need it is number one. But the second most important one is being seen as credible so that we can keep doing this as we go forward. And that's what the challenge is for everyone who remains here when the next administration comes. And it's a challenge for the next administration, if they're serious about this issue, to pick up where we left off and keep pushing and keep moving. Second achievement, of course, was the passage of the Global Food Security Act. The Global Food Security Act is bipartisan. It institutionalizes the work that has been done. It ensures that smallholders and others that are suffering from food insecurity are going to be helped as we go down the road. Um, it signals bipartisan support for this issue, and indeed, it has been bipartisan from the beginning, and that's critically important to success. And one of the requirements in the act, of course, was to create a strategy. And I think the strategy was to, the process of creating the strategy, not always easy, but very successful, very successful. It brought all the agencies together. The teams noodled around in their heads and on paper about every single thing you could think of in terms of what we are doing, what things we'll have to address down the road. It keeps the emphasis on uh, the smallholder farmer on and on ag development, but it doesn't cut it there. It looks forward to investments in these other areas, and it embraces some of the changes in the notions that I was talking about at the beginning, that indeed we're going to have to look at this as a national security issue, that indeed urbanization is going to be affecting what we do in the food security world down the road. So I think the strategy itself is also a great success, and now the challenge, of course, is to implement it effectively. I think a third major accomplishment of this administration, and, of, uh, and I will say of Secretary Kerry, too, who's been beating the banner on this, is the integration of climate change and environmental issues into our food security work across all of the agencies. When I first came here in the 2014, it became pretty apparent to me that 
we needed to link food security and climate, especially in the Department of State, because we had been integrating the climate issue, per the President's request, into the State Department's work, but nobody had connected it to food. So connecting it to food was obviously necessary because the weather affects what you can grow or not grow, but it was also necessary for beginning to drive food security into the diplomatic dialogue. Thus far, most of the discussions globally, as far as I can tell about food security, reside among development ministries and in agricultural ministries. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to meet the challenge of ending hunger and malnutrition by 2030, these discussions have to happen in foreign ministries as well. Foreign ministers, where necessary, have to be just as prepared to talk about food security as they are to talk about climate. And that's only going to happen if we do it day in and day out in our own foreign ministry, in the State Department, and that we continue to have ask our other colleagues who deal with other countries to also build it into their dialogue, no matter what ministry they sit in. So just as it's an intergovernmental effort here in the United States, it kind of needs to be an intergovernmental effort in other countries as well, recipient and donor, without question in my view. Finally, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the accomplishments of my office because I am very proud of my team and what we've been able to do in a short period of time. And as I said, one of our first priorities was climate smart agriculture. And our office played a seminal role, along with our colleagues at USDA, in launching the Global Alliance on Climate Smart Agriculture in 2014. We have, I've been able to get some resources to uh, supplement and complement Feed the Future's work in Central America. We were able to put $10 million into a trilateral partnership with Mexico and Canada to focus on climate smart agriculture in Central America. And the best thing about us putting $10 million in is that the Canadians put in $10 million and the Mexicans have also made a commitment to put in resources. So our 10 has bought at least 10 more and hopefully more than that, all dedicated to dealing with a, a very difficult area close to home and in where food insecurity and economic needs were part of the reasons which drove people to send their kids across the border. Thirdly, we've developed, um, I think, some models that can be replicable. I will, replicable. One of those is COAST, and I won't go into great detail, except that it, what it deals with is the fisheries in the uh, Caribbean area. And it uses climate risk insurance as a tool, if you will, to engender and encourage countries in the region to develop sort of climate strategies to uh, help fishermen to preserve the ocean and to ensure that fish, which is a critically important source of nutrition, and fishing, which is an important source of income for countries in this area, can continue to survive and thrive. And finally, we've also done a lot of work on conflict. Um, it's not surprising, given my background in sort of the national security world, but I have been talking to my team about the last two and a half years about how we have to really sort of get people that do national security to think about food security, to think about this as a non-traditional threat, but one that can impact not only our national security in the worst case analysis, but most importantly, national security in countries we deal with and lead to instability. And I'm proud to say that one of the things we have done in this area was to convince the Department of De Defense to make um, food security a special, quote, special area of emphasis at all our military academies, which means that the uh, students who go to these academies are going to be getting courses or at least lectures on food insecurity and, and its relationship to national security. 
We've also done a lot of work on urban issues. Not, uh, one of them, uh, well, excuse me, as I said, I think we have begun to raise the profile of urban issues and urban food security in dialogues through G7 and APEC and also at UNGA. We've also woven uh, food security into the urban dialogue at Habitat 3. And my office is working with C40, which is a group of 80 plus global cities, to encourage mayors who are really can-do people and they want to find solutions to address food issues, food security issues, and investments along the agricultural food chain in their city areas. And finally, we've tried to begin to fill some of the gap on data. Uh, we've done a number of data uh, initiatives or investments, but I'll just mention one, which is Project 8, which is a digital platform that we have been supporting, that they are going to be bringing in all kinds of data on food security. And it's once the data is in, the way the platform is developed is that people can actually sort of converse, if you will, across the platform, asking each other for more data, criticizing data if they don't think it's accurate. So it's a way to refine the data as well as to collect the data. And if, S and if Project 8's platform is successful in food security, there's a chance that it may become one of the main platforms for all the data for the SDGs uh, accountability process. So we're very, very proud to have found Project 8 and be able to um, do a partnership with them. So that's, that's where I started. That's what we've done. So where do we go? I think that first we have to remember we're no longer in the MDG world. We're in the SDG world. We're no, no longer challenged just to cut in half the number of people that are hungry. We're now committed to ending hunger. And that means we need to end it everywhere. And that means that we do need to broaden our uh, view of where food insecurity lies, where hunger lies, where malnutrition lies. And we have to begin to think more creatively how we can make investments across this broader spectrum. It doesn't mean, it's not an either or proposition. It's not stop investing here to go invest over there. It's challenging ourselves to think about how we can get the resources to do more investments. And I don't just mean public resources, I mean private resources as well, to get more investments. It's also challenging ourselves to how we might be able to develop investments that are kind of a bang for the buck. That, you know, perhaps uh, thinking, of, for example, of rural and urban areas as more of an integrated economic unit and saying, is are there investments we can make that will benefit both sides? Because I do think thinking of the spectrum from rural to urban and, and and how we can treat it as a unit will allow prosperity if we do the investments well to come to both sides, to the farmers, to the, farm, the families and the farm, the kids, and to people living in the cities. Secondly, I think that um, financing. Financing is always a problem. It's always the obstacle to doing all that one wants to do. ODA is not going anywhere. I don't think it's going to grow dramatically. And I think it's going to be a question of how do we really encourage more resources from the private sector? How do we encourage more resources from recipient countries themselves? Are there, cl are there ways we can help them? to do resources. And in fact, my colleague who runs PEPFAR has had a very clever way, which I won't go into, but if Kimberly asks me, I'll tell her, uh, about trying to help countries generate their own internal resources to put to health issues. Um, and we also need to look at um, 
how can we catalyze the public money we do put into food security? Not just food security, but frankly, all of foreign aid. I personally think, I mean, one of the things we've tried to do in the money that I've been able to raise and invest in initiatives was to see if we could catalyze it by putting it through um, international banks, putting it through platforms that would leverage the buck. So if we've put in one, we get two or three. Can we put them in endowments? Can we put them into, um, you know, trust funds that will grow and that will be open to others to put resources in? Because as great as doing grant programs and as great as on-the-ground programmatic work that we pay for on a day-to-day -day basis is, it doesn't raise more money, and we may, we're going to need more money if, to meet this expanded challenge of ending hunger and malnutrition around the world. Thirdly, it is a national security issue, and I don't know quite, to me it seems kind of obvious, and it may be obvious intellectually to everybody else, and yet I've heard some people in positions of knowledge say, it's not a national security issue. Well, it may not be a national security issue in every place that we do food security programs, um, but it's certainly in some of the countries that are the hardest hit right now and that are struggling. They are countries that are engaged in conflict in one way or another, either ongoing low level or very serious conflict like Syria or Yemen, which is a mess and nobody can even get in to assess how deeply it is in trouble. Um, so I think that the dichotomy that existed, or exists, if you will, between, for example, the urban community and the food security community, there's a similar dichotomy, I think, in the development community and the national security community. And we need to find ways and encourage these communities to think and work together. I really think that we're never going to be able to address this challenge successfully unless we figure out how to look ahead, how to see markers out there that are telling us that there's going to be a problem in a country because it's beginning to be unstable. It also has a problem with climate. It also has a problem with food. And say, how do we get in earlier? You know, is there something we can do now to prevent what might come down the road? And it's difficult because I'm not arguing the food security community ought to solve the conflict in Syria, but I am arguing that places like that pose the biggest challenges to us and they, we seem to have more of them on the horizon, not less. So the question is, how are we going to address these? Are we going to ignore them? Or are we going to say, is there something we can do? Is there a different way we can function? Uh, are there markers that we need to look at more, more early in the process to tell us when trouble is going to arise? And I think this is one of the important reasons why we want the defense, DOD, and others involved in the national security community to think about food security as something more than just a humanitarian crisis or humanitarian issue. They need to think about it in broader terms. It needs to be involved in the, the discussions at the centers of power as we go forward. And finally, as Kimberly began the discussion, food security is a bipartisan issue, and we want to keep it there. And I, I don't really have any doubt that that's going to fall off. Um, I think that the passage of the Global Food Security Act was so robust and so bipartisan. Um, I think that the next administration, there's no reason not to be either to keep working on this or to keep the bipartisan focus, because the fact of the matter is a picture of a hungry child or a struggling mother who can't provide food for their kids, that hits the heartstrings of everybody. 
Democrat, Republican, old and young. This is inherently bipartisan, and it needs to stay that way, and I think it will, but I think our challenge is to remind people up on the Hill that it has to be a priority as we go forward, and to remind the next administration. And that's not my job, but that's your job. So thank you. Your water? Supposing I can't do it. I have a broken wrist, so I can't open Oh, my yeah, mouth okay. <laughs> I may have to hand it to Dave. Oh, no. Somebody did it for us, I think. Oh, good. There we go. Thank you so much, Nancy. Um, there's a couple of points I, I just want to um, emphasize as much as I think are particularly relevant. Um, one was the first one, when you talk about how it's much more than a development issue, which we talk about too, you know, right. and then you brought that back again to talk about the national security connection, but how it's about economics and trade and climate change and a humanitarian issue. And I think one of the first questions I want to ask you is specific to, I mean, your time on the Hill, and, and we're in a, you know, an interesting political climate right now. We have so many new congressional members, and even though we do have this fortunate bipartisan swell of support um, and, and that helped the Global Food Security Act pass, I'm still curious, you know, what do you think are the best arguments for those of us that have to continue to work on this and work with new members or even the, the already champions of change that are on the Hill? What are the messages you think um, that can work for congressmen who have to go back to their constituents and say, why is it important for the U.S. to be a leader and give money elsewhere? And how does that really support our national interest? Right. Well, I think it's multifold, really. I mean, I think the first issue, I mean, the first argument you need to make up there, everybody makes it, you make it now, but you need to continue to make it. And that is that this is a human issue. You know, this is about people starving. It's about kids starving. It's about people mm -hmm. that if they, don't, if they don't have enough food and they don't have good enough food and they can't go to work, they can't raise their families, they, can't, they have no income, this is about the human condition. And honestly, Democrat or Republican up there, the human condition resonates and you have to keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. But honestly, you know, a lot of other groups, you know, the guys who do health issues and do this and that, they all come in and say it's the human condition too. So I think that, the, that you know, I'm not going to be naive here and say, oh, that's just going to get everybody over the top. They're all going to agree with you, of course, but then the question is, we have scarce resources, how do we, you know, how do we parcel out the pie? But I think, I think that where I would go after the human resources issue is what is really sort of toward the national security issue. Oh. And it's very interesting in terms of the Global Food Security Act because, you know, I was on the Hill for a long time and I've heard a lot of people try to say, oh, you know, these are national security issues. And some people say, yeah, everybody says that because they want to, they think that's like the, the, the lever that's going to get them what they want. But the fact of the matter is, tell them the story of Syria. Syria sort of says it all in a lot of ways. You know, under the, under, uh, Assad's father, the agriculture production system was quite organized and really quite controlled by the government. But I mean, it was a big, very effective, efficient agriculture production system. But then there were problems with the climate. They had bad harvest. People started to go on the move. 
And as people started on the move, they weren't raising as much, and you started to have um, sources of the potential for sources of instability. Now, obviously, a lot is going on in Syria besides people not being able to grow food and being on the move. But when people get on the move, and particularly when they get on the move to more urban areas, which can often be sort of a hotbed of discontent in places like that, you had kind of a recipe, if you will, for the beginning of a problem growing in that country. Apart, and of course, you know, the conflict overlays that, you know, groups that can't stay in the government for a variety of reasons and so on and so forth. But what I want to say is the situation in Syria is not when we think of food insecurity in Syria and we look at our responses, we read articles about pockets around Syria where people are starving and where they can't get food and we need to do food drops. And we think of it in a humanitarian way. And that is all true and we need to get food into those areas. But what we haven't thought about and what needs to be in the dialogue, and it needs to be in the dialogue on the Hill as they think about places like this, but it also needs to be in the dialogue at the centers of power of our government is the fact that a seminal element of the conflict in Syria is over who controls the food production system because the system broke down as the conflict emerged and everybody's trying to control parts of the system. If you control the bread in that country, you control the people. And we know historically food is a weapon of war. And so we have to factor those pieces in to say to our leaders, when you think about how you're going to respond in a situation like this, you have to understand what role food plays in the driving of that conflict. And we also need to understand how we address it in a humanitarian way. But in the next conflict that's around the corner, we have to be looking now and saying to ourselves, is food a problem? Is the climate a problem? Is the fact that people can grow and going to put them on the move a problem? And if we don't make investments to try to prevent those parts of the problem from developing in some of these countries, then we're going to be looking at Syria-type conflicts all again, I think. Now, I don't want to over-dramatize it. I'm not trying to sit here and say the only reason why they're fighting in Syria is over food. It is not. But it's a seminal part of the problem. So our investments in food security today in countries around the world which are somewhat unstable, we know the government, you know, strengthening governments in a lot of places where they are, in a lot of countries which already have food insecurity is very important. If, so if we address those food problems now, if we strengthen the agriculture system now, we may be able to ward off problems in the future, especially if they become conflict-ridden. So I think that, and also, the, honestly, on the Hill, there's a lot of support for the agricultural community in the United States, and the agricultural community in the United States is also very important to our food security efforts. So I think if you take those three together and, and you match them, I mean, me, I would talk about climate and the impact of climate, but uh, let's be honest, um, climate, is, climate change is not the favorite word of a lot of people on Capitol Hill. Uh, that said, no one can deny, no matter whether you no matter what you think about what's causing climate change, no one can deny that climate, that the weather is impacts the ability to grow food. So I still think you raise that issue, but you raise that issue in a, perhaps with a different set of terminologies than we might currently use now. A softer tone. Softer tone. Yes. Yeah. As, someone, as one of my Republican appropriation colleagues said to me, it's weather, Nancy, it's weather. So let's call it weather. <laughs> Weather volatility, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So you talked about, I loved when you said how the U.S. is like the elephant in the room, right. because it's true, and particularly the last eight years, you know, the U.S. Is, is ready to put its money where its mouth is. So this year, we have the opportunity of the G7 um, in Italy this spring, and one of my, it's not a concern, but when I look at you know, what really galvanized the international community and the U.S. government to, to focus on agricultural development. And it was the price spikes of 2007 and 2008 and the ensuing riots that, that created unstable economies and political environments. And, but the last five years, are, as according to the FEO, price have gone down, right. actually. So uh, two-fold question. One is, does it worry you that prices are stable? Because that's a good thing, in right. a sense. And also, what is the opportunity that the U.S. and the international community could have for the G7? What advice would you love to give, or what policy changes would you like to see come out of that meeting this spring? Well, I think that it is good. The prices are stable. I don't think that in itself um, has really changed, uh, created a dip in mm. interest in food security. Italy's going to lead G7 this year. and. Um, I mean, okay, Italy's in a bit of a mess, as we all know, having lost its leadership. And so it's um, perhaps not as organized about leading G7 as it could be. But we get a sense from the conversations that um, my team and that, uh, the AID team, in fact, two of them are sitting here, have had with, um, with the uh, Italians and others that they still really want to keep an emphasis on food security, and I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the question is, where do we take that? Even though we, and particularly me in my office, have talked about some of these emerging trends and, and really do talk about them with our G7 and G20 colleagues, there is still a lot of focus on rural rural agricultural development. This year, I think that the Italians are talking about rural ag development, and particularly youth, right? Uh, and I think that's very important. But one of the things we have to think about with youth is the youth are on the move. And you know, I'm not really sure, no matter what we do, you can keep a kid on the farm if the kid doesn't want to be on the farm. And so I think that um, it opens the door for us, actually, to try to encourage the G7 to be to think more about that spectrum from rural to urban, uh, rather than keeping it solely, especially when you're talking about youth, because they are the ones who are moving in many cases. So I think it opens the door for us to talk about that spectrum. And I think it also opens the door to say, okay, what kind of investments do we need to make along that spectrum, particularly in areas where you have growing secondary cities, as we call them, you know, smaller cities, but they're getting bigger and bigger and people are on the move, and sometimes people move both ways. That's really a place that maybe we ought to focus because we need to take food security. Our, our, what we really want out of this is, of course, we want to be able to have a farmer not be in subsistence, the family not be in the subsistence. We want our investments to have the farmer be able to grow more, to have the families be richer. But the other thing we need to do is to increasingly emphasize the ability or the help farmers or fishermen or whoever the smallholder is to be able to coalesce together to form more of an economic unit because it's as an economic unit, especially in areas where you have secondary cities growing and where the markets for the food and the fish are, those economic units are going to 
be much more powerful, to be able to have more impact on the system, to, you know, to be able to get investments from the private sector to move their food. So I think you know, focusing, looking at that spectrum and be trying to drive that into this year's discussion, and this is me talking, you know, the, the uh, interagency process may come out someplace else, but this is certainly something that I've encouraged my team to try to bring into the process. Mm -hmm. So I think that the focus is still there, yeah. and I think the challenge now is, is going to be, I think because the sense is we haven't accomplished the goal. So I think the focus is still there, but I think the real challenge is going to be how do we make the focus more targeted and pointed? If we're going to do more in rural areas, then how do we expand that so that we have targeted efforts that actually maybe get even bigger banks for uh -huh. the buck? And, and connected to that, you talked about how these discussions have to happen in foreign ministries, which right. is such a great point. Um, and one of the hallmarks, many in this room are, I'm sure, quite familiar with Feed the Future, is that it's a, you know, a country-led development model. So, you know, how do we not only gauge but also engage, you know, domestic leadership on this? Right. And how do we keep them accountable? You know, yeah. when they're, when they're not stepping up to the plate and doing what's on paper. Right. Um, yeah. As well as incentivize them. Right. Perhaps. Well, I think. Well, I mean, I think the country-led model, which grew out of the Rome principles, I I think is great. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that that is step one in getting the recipient countries to be invested. Yeah. Um, but I think that the other thing that's good about the way we are approaching this, and certainly something that we need to continue to support, is that those country-led models need to be developed, not just with government ministries, but it mm -hmm. needs to be developed with um, civil society as well. Everybody has to be part of that process. And I must say, I was really stunned. You know, I did Africa issues for mm, almost a decade when I was on the Hill. So I knew a fair amount about Africa, but I was really both ple pleasantly surprised when I started working on food security to realize that the African Union actually was kind of ahead of us on this issue of food security. Mm. You know, long before we had the big push in 2009, the African Union recognized that agricultural development was slipping, that they were going to have problems with food insecurity, and that they began to form their own CATA plans. So, you know, hats off to Africa. They understood that the problem was there, it was looming, and it was on the horizon. So I think that for a number of these countries, it's already in the, on their radar screen. And I think that developing country plans is one way to keep them accountable because when those countries are plans out there and they're publicized, civil society knows about it, business community knows about it, we know about it. The real question is how do we get them, how do we help them or suggest to them ways that they can bring their own resources to bear? Because I think increasingly, Unless somebody's got some magic bullet out there about overseas development assistance that I've not, I don't know about, you know, I think they're going to have to put increasingly put more of their own investments in. And so then the question is, how do we help them figure out how to do that? Right. I mean, it's one thing to make a pledge of 10% of your budget. It's another thing to meet the pledge of 10% of your budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 10% of your budget just for agriculture, you said it's such a broad issue. It's a broad issue. It's health, it's economic, yeah, it's trade, that yeah, it's complicated it's to even track. It's really sometimes. hard. But I do think that having, if we, as a key donor, talk about food security in our various ministries, I think that's also a way to get the recipients yeah. to talk about it in their various industries, because they can't avoid it. If the U.S. is sitting there saying, murmur, murmur to you about food security, and you're in some ministry, and you never thought you were going to have that discussion, all of a sudden you're thinking about it. I'll give an example. I've been talking, for example, to finance ministers in the Caribbean about this risk insurance thing because it's finance ministers who have to buy risk insurance for countries. So now they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and so you mentioned, you know, you not only worked on 
Well, you worked on two, the two big interagency development initiatives when you think of PEPFAR and Feed the Future, but in dramatically different ways, yes. different perspectives. Um, so what are some lessons learned um, between those? What are some things that Feed the Future might be able to learn from PEPFAR and vice versa? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, well, you know, they seem to be, well, let's say I did PEPFAR from the other side of town, so I did a lot of the drafting of the legislation that became um, PEPFAR. I didn't have to implement PEPFAR, <laughs> so, um, so maybe it's a bit of apples and oranges from that score. But I can say that when I thought about, when I mean, having um, you know, been so attuned to the AIDS epidemic as it was um, developing, and as I said, having worked on Africa, so it's kind of natural for me to be focused on that. Um, and when I think about that epidemic and the responses and what the global community did there, and when I think about food security, one of the things that has struck me from the beginning is that it seemed like it was easier to get your arms around the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And it may be because it's a disease and it's, you can get data on viral loads. You can get, you know, you know how many people died, you know how many people are infected, you know how many people need treatment. So in and of itself, it seems more manageable in a way. Now, you know, when we tried to create the legislation and when we created the legislation to address the epidemic, we really tried to make it very broad in terms of requiring a, um, a plan from the administration that was intergovernment, that was whole of government plan, and also recognizing that it, um, it's not, not just about treatment, but it's about supporting families and villages and so forth. And then most importantly, we also recognized that we had some other diseases that were very closely linked. I mean, TB and malaria not so much, but malaria, frankly, at least when we drafted the bill, was another critically infectious disease that, um, that sort of swirls around in the same place. So, uh, But that said, all of those things had thick markers that you could look at and point to. So trying to determine a response on the AIDS problem seemed to be, to me, a little bit more manageable than in food security. Because food security, I think by definition, is much bigger, much bigger. And when I came in and started, and they started talking to me, my team started talking to me about all these components of food security, my head was kind of spinning, and I had this image of and who was doing what and all this stuff, and all I could think of was everybody had a, had a pot of paint with a different color, and they were all throwing it at the wall, and we were all hoping it would come out good. And I think it has in many, many respects. I think that what has been done to address hunger and malnutrition around the world has been very, very successful. That said, because food security is a multidisciplinary issue, because it touches on so many things, it's really hard to step back and say, where aren't we making success? Mm. You know, we all can look at where we've seen progress and can we find some statistics, and not all of it is easily put into data. I mean, yeah. even so, I'm saying we need better data on hunger and malnutrition and poverty, particularly in urban areas, because we don't have it in urban areas. That said, it's not all just about that. I mean, how do you factor in trade data? How, you know, how, what do you do when, when we talk about culturally acceptable food? I mean, there's so many different components uh -huh. here. So I don't know. Think I've answered. I think I've gone on a riff, but I'm not sure I've answered your question. Well, I think you you've reminded us how complex it is. Yeah, you know, agricultural really development is is complicated. So right. same thing in messaging. You know, and messaging results. Right. I mean, I think it's it's very clear that feed the future is a success, but yes. it's it's hard to to figure out very easy, measurable, tangible it is. metrics that make sense to a broad audience. I think so, and I think the tricky part about pro 
programs like any of these kinds of programs are. You can do the inputs, but how do you define the outputs? And you know, you can't quantify. I mean, you can say that more, more kids have been treated and more farmers have more seeds, but what you really need is an assessment of what their life looks like. And you can't put that in st statistics. Yeah, it's hard. So as you think about, it, you know, even looking ahead, even if, if you won't be part of the next transition. Yes. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> if, if, there, if there were another special representative of food security, yeah. you know, what advice would you give uh, him or her in terms of how we can be more, most efficient, most effective? You know, what are what some lessons that you've learned in all of your years of, of how this next administration should go forward to do the best they can? Well, I mean, I think I would tell my successor, um, First of all, be energetic, be enthused. Think out of the box, I hate that term, but it does sort of say what I'm trying to say. You know, be creative and think about um, keeping the focus, well, two things. Number one, continue to drive the issue through the department more. We've, we've only just begun. I think we've made strides, but it needs to continue to, to happen. And our office needs to be at the forefront of that effort um, within the department itself, I would say. Secondly, I would say keep, keep reminding people that we have to think of this as a whole. You know, that it is a broad topic, as you said. It's multidisciplinary. And we have to think about hunger wherever it exists. Mm -hmm that we've got to think about making investments and we need to think about making investments that uh, try to address multiple components at once, if we can, instead of singular investments. And finally, I think that one thing the Department of State can do very well to help AID and help the, and others as well, but to, is to raise more resources in a sense of being, we can be a megaphone in the State Department. I, I suspect that in the last two and a half years I've been a bit of a megaphone. But we can raise the banner. We can speak loudly. And I think one of the things we really are going to need to do is to make a concerted, organized effort to talk to the business community, particularly the private sector, about how they can put more resources in a way that benefits them as companies and that still addresses the needs that we identify and the needs and the goals that we want to accomplish. And I think it's there. You know, I've talked to some of the CEOs of big companies. I mean, obviously you want to start with companies in the agricultural investment chain or agricultural food chain, but, and that's going to be particularly the case in urban areas as well. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, and the other thing is we should never, we should start increasing our dialogue. And again, this is something the State Department can do particularly uh, Secretary Kerry has challenged us to work at urban areas and to work with subnational players mm -hmm. and you know what we need to do it I went to this C40 conference in Mexico City about a month or two ago because C40 which as I mentioned was this group of 80 to 90 global cities around the world and it's basically mayors and mayors are can-do people they have problems they have to solve it they want to get reelected and they really don't have time to just sit and talk about it they're all about solutions and I was stunned when I went to this conference because it was mostly mayors talking to mayors and all the panels and what were they talking about problems and solutions problems and solutions and the good thing about C40 and one of the reasons why we are working with them is they are working on the overlay between climate they started out as being focused on climate and the impact of climate on urban areas but they came to realize and we have been talking to them about this but happily they came to realize and the mayors came to realize that food the food system was really important for cities so they created a sub network around 
food systems. And we are supporting that network, and we're trying to get technical advisors into cities to work on that. So my point is that investments are made in cities. They're made in urban and peri-urban areas. So it's all the more important to begin to bring the business community to transition, not just from having nice corporate social responsibility projects, but making serious investments that are in their economic interests, but in the interests of the countries and the people we want to help. Great. Um, I want to turn to the audience, of course, to ask questions. Um, we have one already in the back. Go ahead. We'll bring you a microphone so that the webcast can hear you as well. Please introduce yourself and your organization. <coughs> Hi, Ambassador. My name's uh, Sam Baines. I'm from Food Crunch. Uh, following up on your last point there, I attended an event in New York about two months ago, uh, a company called ICV Events, and their sole purpose is to connect uh, Wall Street investors who want to invest in sustainable agriculture and have a social impact on the world with people looking for investment. And this basically comes around the fact that there's a cultural change on Wall Street, which is that People, the young investors coming through, they want to make money, but at the same time, if they can make money doing something that makes them feel good, right. then they will take that carrot. Right. Um, having said that, this event, I see the events, which host the events, does it around the world, and at these events, there's a noticeable lack of government representation. So following more up on what you were just saying, the demand is there, and the basic economic model is build a market filled with opportunity, and highly motivated and ambitious people will mm -hmm. come, what can, is the government doing or what more can the government do to bridge that gap between the need of Wall Street, the money, and the government's efforts? Well, you just kind of said it. We haven't obviously been doing enough if we weren't at that conference. <laughs> and we should be. But I think, you know, I think it's... Um I think there's always a little bit nervousness in government to, to deal directly you know, with that sector for fear. I mean, let's face it, we've just been through an election where Wall Street became an issue in and of itself. Um, having said that, I think that part of it is finding ways to reach out to those people and have them reach out to us. We don't always know about all these events. So you can't go to something you don't even know that exists. I mean, I would certainly be at a, co a convention like that if somebody asked me to be. But I also think here's one plus about the administration that's coming in. The administration that's coming in is Wall Street in many number of ways. They understand about big investments. So in a way, that's already on the table, right? So what our challenge, not my challenge directly, but the challenge of those who want to continue this work, I think, within this administration is reminding them and keeping them focused on the food security and the way it can be linked. Mm -hmm. And those young, socially responsible entrepreneurs are, are definitely need to be the target. So, you know, I think part of it is developing a dialogue. And that's why I think that each of us that are in agencies in the U.S. government that deal with food security, we don't all do the same thing. I don't run Feed the Future. I don't know how to run Feed the Future. My colleagues at AID run it and run it very well. They know how to do it. But what, what can I do? What can our office do? Our office can stand up as we can talk to foreign ministries. We can bring, we can go out there, as I said, and create a platform and create a message and bring a megaphone. And the messaging is critical because I think the messaging hasn't been as broad and comprehensive as it could be. I think the messaging, even though we talk about all the little things we do in this agency or that agency, what we need to find is a message that resonates and that you can carry out there about why it's in your interest to help us to do this. Whether you're the recipient government 
well then it's in your interest to help you to do it, or whether it's the private sector. So I think it's really a question of making the connections, and frankly, sometimes I think we you know, get stuck in our own little offices behind those locked doors and don't reach out enough. And I actually noticed that when I came to the State Department. When I first came into this office, I felt like everybody was just kind of you know, locked behind the door, and I think that's to some extent true in the department, even though people go out and give speeches and whatever. You know, Capitol Hill, for example, is a totally different thing. People are bouncing in and out of your office every two minutes, and they're there whether they have an appointment or not. Well, of course, because of security, you can't do that in the State Department and a lot of these agencies. But in a way, it's a shame. Because sometimes when people kind of walk down the corridors, you bump into somebody who knows somebody, you learn something you didn't know. Now you have to learn it by appointment, and that's kind of a problem in my perspective. Mm. Let's get a question from Julie right over here. Hi. Hi. Yeah, Julie Howard, Michigan State University, former USAID Bureau of Food Security. Nancy, thank you so much for your work. Thank um, you. And for the work of your office. Um, I wanted to say, I, I know firsthand the role that, that you and Jonathan Schreier, your predecessor, have played in really elevating uh, the, the, the um, prominence of food security on the national agenda, right. in the international agenda. Right. I wanted to ask you to unpack a little bit uh, more what you were saying about this is a national security issue. Uh, there needs to be a greater tie with defense. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, having seen here in the U.S., having seen in the state, in the embassies abroad, the incredible influence of state and your ambassadors in elevating uh, the issue of global food security, not only in global circles, but in to the ministries of finance. Right. Uh, without state, that was not possible. I mean, in all of my career, you know, we labored to get beyond the confines of Ministry of Agriculture. Now right. that's possible. So I want to ask you to comment a little bit more about well, what do we need uh, to elevate this as a, as a national security issue. Beyond the rhetoric, what does that mean? It means, yes, certainly it means training uh, in the military academies, right. but how do we drive this as an issue in state, but also drive as an issue in defense without scaring us, I right. think, right? right? About what that could mean. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's not easy. I mean, really it isn't. I mean, I think in the State Department, um, you know, part of it is just procedures sometimes in the department. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was uh, talking to the secretary, this is quite some time ago, about Syria. And I said, uh, you know, has um, food security come up in a lot of those dialogues that you've been to on mm. Syria? And he said, well, well, yeah. And I said, well, but how? I mean, did it, what? Was it considered to be a humanitarian issue, you know, food drops? He said, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, that's it? And he said, yeah, why? And I said, because it's bigger. And so I was starting to talk to him about the dimensions of the problem in Syria and some of the things that I had been briefed on and this and that and the other. He said, oh, really? Well, that doesn't really come out. And so whose fault is that? that the Secretary of State didn't really know that. In a way, it's my fault, because I'm trying to get it up the ladder, and now I happen to be, I happen to have a relationship with the Secretary of State, so it might have been easier for me to have that conversation with him. That said, the way even our bureaucracy is structured, you know, getting information and having to have so many clearances on so many information and everything, it's really hard to get critical stuff sometimes on issues like this, which aren't quite in the, they're not in a box, you know. Food security cuts across so many different 
different issues, even the foods, even our office, our office is under the Secretary of State. So we're not a bureau. You know, things go up through the bureau chain. Yes, we get to clear, but a thousand people get to clear on everything. So, I mean, this is, sounds really petty and pedantic, and I'm not trying to not answer your question, but I found if you're talking about observations, sometimes it's really hard to get critical information on an issue which is so cross-cutting, where it needs to be in a timely fashion so it can be used. And this is one of them. So I think part of the way to to get around that. Again, it's more socialization among your colleagues within, in this case, the State Department, to try to make them understand why working on this issue makes sense, not just in, in humanitarian terms or just in economic terms, but also in terms of trying to address potential causes of instability before they happen. And I think that one of the things that we in State can do is to create our own internal, I mean, I've encouraged our office to do this, and we've done this somewhat, but our own kind of internal working group on this, where we begin to do it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other bureaus. The I.O. Bureau obviously is focused. There are other bureaus, but it, it, it's really not all that easy. In terms of, um, but I think the other thing is, and I've thought a lot about this, and I don't really have an answer, but I really think there's something to be said for creating, and I'm not one who tends to run to create interagency groups and processes because there's enough of them already. Um, but I don't know whether it's having in the interagency process some kind of maybe a subgroup that could kind of focus on the national security component or trying to create a working group. And it shouldn't just be with the government either. I mean, I think we need to bring in some of the outside players that see see things on the ground early and talk about, I mean, obviously the, the NGOs particularly that work in conflict areas can tell us a lot about, or could spur, I think, I think a lot about how we might address um, this issue in a, in a more, in a more substantive way than just, as you say, just the rhetoric. And, you know, I was in Nigeria a few couple of months ago, and I went up to, um, I went up to the Boko Haram area. And uh, it's not so good up there, you know. And food insecurity, and, and even worse, malnutrition. I mean, I saw babies that, you know, they were losing like four babies a night at the clinic I went to, and they thought that that was a low number from um, lack of sustenance. And uh, it, you know, the conflict has driven that food insecurity in every sense of the word. And even where areas where the Nigerian military has gotten Boko Haram out, people will never really go back home. They might go to the local village near there, but they'll never go back to their farms because they're terrified to go back. And we had groups on the ground there. They weren't all up in that province, but we did have, up in that state, they weren't all up in Borno State, but we did have groups on the ground. And one of the things we need to do is find a way to encourage them to get the, I mean, I know often groups get the information out, but we need to be in a listening mode. We need to hear that stuff. Because it's the, I think honestly, it's not the theoretical, it's the real world examples of how this is impacting, of the relationship between conflict and food insecurity and malnutrition that are going to drive the efforts rather than just trying to make theoretical arguments. If you go and you see it in Syria, you go and you see it in Nigeria, if you could get into Yemen and you see it, even if you look at Venezuela, it's not in full-blood conflict, but there's certainly instability and food is also a critical factor there. You see it and you look at it, then it forces you to think about it. And that's how we drive it into these dialogues. And it's a lot of work. It's not easy. I'm going to ask a more explicit question on that same, in that same realm. 
Do you see that there might be more of a, a, a direct role for Department of Defense or the Office of Director of National Intelligence in the interagency effort on food security? There should be. I, I think there should be. I think that, um, I, and I think the reason for pulling in, particularly uh, the de defense community, is not just because we want them to think about these threats. And I will say, to their credit, they are thinking about it. I mean, there are very components within DOD that are looking at some of these longer-term threats. Some of the work, though, is how do, how do disruptions in the food supply chain affect us? Well, that's fine, but we also need to look at how disruptions affect the people mm -hmm. out there that are going to be in countries where there's instability. That said, though, I think it is beginning to move in the, in the, de in the defense community. But one of the reasons why I made the pitch, and it wasn't an easy pitch to make. I went over to NDU. And I made this pitch to a bunch of what? Colonels, you know, sort of colonel level guys who train units, who teach courses. And some of them are nodding their head aggressively, agreeing with everything I said about why they should care. And the other half were like, who's this woman? You know, she's sitting there. What's this pitch she's making to us? One of them said to me, I don't see why my soldiers should be worried about this. This is a, just a little niche issue. And I wanted to smack them, frankly. But uh, that aside, that aside, I said, well, I don't really think it's a niche issue. And why do we want them involved in that? We want them to be thinking about this. We want the guys that are going to be officers and the guys that are going to go out in the field to think about this. Because they, in many cases, in a variety of ways, are on scene early. They see things. I mean, you know, if you look at the Africa Command, it's sitting out there. It, it's not actively engaged in activities all the time in terms of military activities, but it's eyes and ears to see what's happening. And those eyes and ears need to be more attuned to this to this problem so that they can, and, it, and what they know can't stay over in DOD and needs to be fed back. So to your point, and I think it's, I thought of it, but I like it. I think that, yes, we ought to bring them into our process more, representatives of DOD, and also the intelligence community. I must say that I'm very proud of our intelligence shop at the State Department because we have a great analysis uh, analyst who works on food security, and um, you know she's really on top of it, and INR looks a lot at it, and they've been looking a lot at food insecurity in terms of cities as well. But that said, when I asked her to bring a bunch of teams in from the CIA and other agencies, one time to talk about this, you know, I found that it's all, again, it's all cut up in pieces. So people who did financial transactions or did this or did that might not be thinking about food security. Only this group thought about it. So really, these cross-cutting issues of climate and food security particularly, and water, water's another problem. These cross-cutting issues, somehow we have to find a way as a government, and we're never very good at melding things, but, but bringing them across the average buckets or chains or whatever you want to call them where, where the political issues are discussed or where the military issues are discussed. And I think a lot of it has to happen. I think it even needs to happen, frankly, in our own just regular universities. And one of the things we are seeing now and we are doing is trying to work with various universities to begin to bring food security into their classrooms as well. Fantastic. Let's get a series of questions. Um, let's go right here in the front. Hi, Don Scalisi from Thompson Reuters. Um, Ambassador Stetson, you talked about um, advancements made in filling data gaps, as well as the establishment of Project Date. What would you deem to be the biggest remaining data challenges for this field? Well, I, before Ooh. you answer, let's get a few more questions. We can get a few more in right here in the data. very front. Yeah, you might want to take notes on that. Sorry, let me run them. Go ahead, pad. introduce yourself. 
Sure, my name is Ben Christensen. I am a student from Brigham Young University. And my question is, could you give a, an example of an instance in which there was a potential national security threat and um, American food security efforts played a critical role in mitigating that? Great question. Let's get one more. Let's do the very, very back. I can't see. Yes, right there. Uh -huh. Thanks. <clears throat> Hi, uh, my name is Samantha Chivers. I work for an organization called Thousand Days that advocates for action and investment. Thank you for nodding. That's really great. Um, that advocates for action and investment in that critical thousand day window between a woman's pregnancy and her child's second birthday. So I'd really like to thank you for coming. It's been such an enlightening discussion. Um, I was really curious. Uh, I was really uh, happy to hear that you were talking about the integration of food security and nutrition, and I'd really love to hear your thoughts on how we can better integrate that work. Okay. Great. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I think on the data challenges, um, I think it's sort of it's sort of three pieces. I mean, the first one is the recognition that maybe we're working off of old data. Um, I think in the two and a half or three years that I've been doing this, when I did sort of raise the point about, well, you know, what's going on in smaller cities or any place other, you know, I would kind of keep hearing the same statistics um, thrown out about, well, you know, three quarters of the world's poorest, hungriest people live in rural areas. And I'm not doubting that, I'm, I'm not disputing that, that a lot of, lot of poor people in, live in rural areas. But the only question is that statistic goes back to 1970-something. I mean, it's an old statistic. And if it's still valid, great, and we should use it. But we also should ask ourselves, do statistics that, hap that we rely on, that happen to, you know, that were taken 10, 20, 30 years ago in this fast-moving world, is they're really telling us what we want to know. So I think part of it's a mindset about asking ourselves, what don't we know? And what more do we need to know? I think certainly there is a lot of dearth of data about what's going on in peri-urban and urban areas. I mean, and we know, and, I, and you know, part of what mobilized me, to, apart from my staff, to talk about this too was the intelligence community's assessment of food security, which came out in unclassified form last year, because that assessment points a lot to movement. People are moving. Demographic trends are changing. And, um, and that poses all kinds of uh, challenges for food security, not in terms of, even in terms of who's going to be left on the farm to grow, but also, um, you know, higher population rates if people on the move. You know, how is it just agricultural production that's going to allow us to feed 9 million people in 2050? Or do we need to, you know, what more do we need to do in food waste management? And, uh, you know, we really not probably not focused at all enough on that. So I think that you know I think that the other kind of data we need to is data that is more granular. I don't think it's granular enough and so it makes it hard to make investments and particularly you know we invest I mean we can't afford to invest all over the world. So if you're going to pick an area, a country or a part of a country where you invest, you need that granular data and I don't think it's granular enough at this point. Uh, all right. Let's see, what was the other one? Integration of nutrition and, you know, I think the, I think um, that's a tricky question. I think, I think mindset is an overused word by me, but it really is also there. I think that we don't have enough meetings, frankly, between the nutrition community and the global food security people. I think that, um, that we ought to have, it would be nice to sit down and say, uh, 
look at the investments that are made in nutrition and the investments that are made in food security and ask ourselves is you know are they both achieving what we want to achieve in tandem you know because they are linked obviously if people are malnourished then they're not going to be producers and that's going to affect the individual the family and the country and the economic development of the country but i think the one good positive thing at least in terms of the united states is that we now have a very good um, intergovernmental, I mean, interagency uh, plan, to coordination plan to work on nutrition. So I think the real challenge is that we stay coordinated and that we talk to each other. And I've seen over the last couple of years, you know, there were some gaps in coordination. I mean, like, and sometimes you just get territorial fights over whose issue is it. And nutrition's a tricky issue like food security because it cuts across health, you know, it cuts across food, it cuts across a lot of different things. It cuts mother, mother to child, you know, it cuts across the whole nine yards. But I think that I think it's really hard, you know, it seemed on the Hill it was a lot easier to bring it together, probably because we were a much smaller population, so it didn't, and it didn't take as many people to get it done. The real challenge, it seems to me, in the executive branch is how do you find the right people and bring them together and get them done? But I, but I think the one plus of the food security strategy is that it kind of forces us to do that even more, and that's a plus. And you, young man, have the hardest question. <laughs> um, I don't know whether or not I can give you an exact example where investing in food security was the magic bullet that stopped a conflict. Um, what I can tell you is that our investments in, uh, you know, have maybe mitigated for some people. I um, mean, in various parts of Africa where they have low-lying conflict and we've still been able to invest, we've been able to keep their lives better. But I don't know that I, I mean, maybe somebody help me. Is there one out there that I've forgotten? Go. Um, Use the microphone so huh? that our webcast can hear you. Thank you. Uh, one example could be, um, especially when uh, troops are in conflict zones, keeping hearts and minds, providing local townships with food that allows them to flourish so they can maintain the popular That's will true. of the people. Yeah, short term. I mean, those are short term investments usually. But yes, yes, you know, our troops on the ground do do short term investments like that. Um, but in terms of a long term investment yeah. where we've really put in a swath of money and we've stopped something from yeah. happening or mitigated it. But I think your question points out what we need to do. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is to, again, we have to, you know, we have sort of two modes of operation. We have that humanitarian crisis mode over here, and we have that long-term development mode over here. And trust me, I don't have the answer to this. And if somebody's got it, please come and tell me, because I've been looking for it for a long time now. But we have to look at this. We need a third path. We need a third way here. And we have to ask ourselves, how can we do more in countries where either that are instable, unstable, that may indeed go into conflict. We know climate may be an issue. We know food security is going to be an issue. We know that it's going to impact the ability of people to live their daily lives in a normal way, and in this case, to grow food. And we have to ask ourselves, or, or to do the other you know, jobs that they have in the agricultural food chain. And we're going to have to ask, but it's primarily around the growing and in the rural areas. We're going to have to ask ourselves, 
can we, are there parts of this country that we can work in? Are there an, are, can we put more flexibility into our investments? I mean, even the way we pay for activities on the ground in these situations is, is, is difficult because, you know, oh, this one has to come out of the emergency assistance pot and it's going to be off budget or it's not going to be off budget. Well, no, this had to be in our you know, annual budget for Feed the Future or whatever, so we don't have money here. We have to rethink, and I don't have the answer to this question. I wish I did, because it really gnaws at me. But how are we going to be able to take a situation where people are really in bad shape, and they need food, and they don't have food because they couldn't grow food because of conflict and turmoil? How, is there anything we can do in those situations other than drop a food bag. And if there isn't, then we're going to have to ask ourselves, okay, how do we get the data? How do we get thinking, you know, get us, get ourselves attuned to looking at situations earlier, at every one of these situations where there's likely to be, you know, some sort of instability. How do we get ourselves to focus on it early enough in the game so that we can put in and do what we need to do then to try to prevent people from having the worst end result later. Now, obviously, if you're sitting in Syria and some guy's got a knife and he's going to hack your head off, you're going to flee or you're going to do whatever you need to do to save yourself and your family. And there's not much anyone can do except to hope that you get out from under them. On the other hand, there are not all situations are like that. Not all situations are like that. And frankly, even in the Syria case, if we had been thinking about the role of food differently, there might have been some different responses we could have made that would have made a difference. Because the fact of the matter wasn't like there wasn't anybody growing food in Syria. There's still food in Syria. It's a whole different situation there. So we need to look at, at food across its many dimensions, too. What, and ask yourself, what role is it playing? So I don't have an answer to your question. I don't have an answer to what the right process would be. But I do know that if we broaden our thought about this issue, and if we get these other communities like defense mm -hmm. and others to think about this issue as well, when they're out there on the ground, I think maybe that could lay the groundwork for a more creative and successful response and maybe mitigate some of that component of a crisis. Thank you so much. I wish we had more time because I know there's a lot more questions to be asked. Um, thank you, thank you for being with us on your second to last day yes. in office. Um, it's uh, been uh, wonderful to see you in action, and thank, thank you. you for your service. Any other, you kind of, whether you meant to or not, that last one felt like a concluding remark. But is there any other final thoughts or any other thing that you really want us to take away from, from your lessons that you've learned? Um, well, I think what I want you to do is keep working. Keep at it. Keep pushing. Um, you know, I came into this issue, like I said, as a tabula rasa. And I was used to doing a variety of issues, as you can tell. And I thought, oh, I don't know. Is this going to keep me interested? Not only did it keep me interested, but now I feel like I'm energized beyond belief. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that it helped forward the president's effort, then I, I hope, you know, I'm glad. Um, I really do believe that this administration has really done a fantastic job, mm -hmm. in, uh, and everybody in it. Um, at all levels, have mm -hmm. really, really prioritized this and done a fantastic job. I'm proud to be part of that effort. And I really hope that those of you who are still working on this and those of you who remain in government will, you know, 
keep the flame burning and uh, keep pushing the next administration as well because we should not fall off of this wagon. Right. We just shouldn't. So thank you. Thank you so very much. much. Yeah.